Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. This is the sixth and final part of Joshua Anderson's Announcing the Kingdom Evangelism class. In this panel discussion, Josh Anderson, Jerry Werewolf, and I discuss several issues before taking questions from the audience. If you've been following this class at all, I think you'll really be interested in these different kinds of questions. For example, we talk about how can we develop relationships with non-Christians? How should we handle rejection, which is inevitable for all of us? What should we say when asked a question we don't know the answer to, which also happens to all of us? How do we respond when someone brings up all the pain and suffering in the world, especially right now going through this coronavirus situation? This is inevitably going to be on people's minds is why does God allow this to happen? What, what, what say you, Mr. or Miss Evangelist, in response to this? Also, what should we do when the conversation just stalls out? And last of all, we talk about Ray Comfort's method of what I would term confrontational evangelism and whether or not that has any place in what we do today. If you haven't yet, check out the previous episodes in this six-part series. Here now is episode 320, Evangelism Panel Discussion. All right, so we're, we're talking about the subject of evangelism, and uh, we've just been listening to a lot of information here. And I wanted to have a little discussion amongst ourselves up here, but also if you, and if you wanted to raise a question or make a comment, that would be great, and we can uh, you know get down to business. One of the issues that I have personally, and I don't know if you feel this way too. It, it depends on what it depends on your life, <laughs> but one of my issues is developing relationships with non-Christians. I find that hard. I find it hard to find non-Christian friend or people to develop friendships with. I feel that my culture is so isolated. I was telling Josh just a short while ago, I go to the, to the gym to exercise and, you know, I, I'm not talking to any of them and they're not talking to me and they're not talking to each other. I mean, we're all isolating and that's normal. And uh, so, you know, just I'm, I'm curious, you know, if Josh has some recommendations and, um, you know, maybe this dinner party thing is really where you're probably going to go, which is which is fine. But, um, you know, I think it's really important that 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 each one of us be able to fill out that paper. If you can't fill out that paper, there's something wrong. You know what I mean? If you don't have people in your life that you could potentially share your faith with, guess what? You can't share your faith. And if that's, if that's the Great Commission, if that's what we're like on earth to do, I mean, obviously there's other things we do as well, but you've got you to gotta put yourself out there to develop relationships with people is what I'm thinking. Uh, do you have any comments on that? Yeah, sure. So two things. So, yeah, about the celebrations, that's huge, just inviting neighbors over for actual dinner and wine. All of us can do, right? Everybody can do that. I do want to say, and I'm not going to put too much pressure on this because I know what will happen is, is we'll take it and then just absolve ourselves of responsibility. So don't do that with what I'm about to say. But the reason I focused on also the three strands, remember? And one of the strands was community. And we said each one of us has a gifting. So some people just are straight up naturally going to be better at meeting people. 
you know these people. They never met a stranger, actually. They just, you know, there's these people, and they're more socialites, and they're more, and there are people who are bringers. They just bring people. Man, every couple weeks, they bring somebody else or whatever. And then, well, guess what? You're still not absolved of the ministry of reconciliation. You still have the message of reconciliation. And just because someone else may technically be bringing a lot more into, into your life, for me, I'm in a season, I was telling Sean at the break, I'm not meeting a ton of people right now after we came back from Japan. I mean, Japan was a different story. That was my job. But after coming back in the last year, my season is my wife is the one who's bringing people into my life. She's got, I mean, we have this girl, uh, she's a uh, international student from Japan staying with us for a bit. We have uh, Natalie's friends, some Indian friends. We had an old uh, our girl from Korea who was in our lives. And all these relationships that come into my life who I'm meeting, I'm having dinner with her, I'm celebrating, I'm doing all the things that I've been telling you to do, but I didn't bring any one of them into my life. They just show up into my life. It's not just that you have to go and seek, but I do stand by the stuff I was saying about the first steps, the easy steps you can take of just becoming more intentional and that language root of just basic, basic human interaction, you know. Uh, Jerry, do you want to add anything? Uh, sure. Uh, with a follow-up question on that, I think some of us are interested in how do we have public encounters with people, how do we then bring that into the personal sphere of life? So it's one thing to have like a dinner party or a community event where people are sort of already uh, within this social network, but like let's say you're at the grocery store and, and you're, you're talking with somebody and you're, that's like a basic a five minute encounter perhaps maybe. Is there any way to sort of like begin to build a bridge so that you can somehow continue contact with that person without it being awkward? Like, oh, hey, can I, can I, have, can I have your number? I, you know, I want to tell you more about this. It's like, um, do you have any strategy for that? Yeah, so I didn't finish John Leonard's story, who's the guy who went to the ATM and then, you know, the bank and then the grocery store, and he was just avoiding everybody to write his book on evangelism. <laughs> he described how when he started changing this, he did start meeting this grocery checker girl uh, who was pregnant, underage girl, and just noticing her, catching her name, and then just each week remembering, being specific to remember her name as an act of love and just talk to her like, you know, how's it going? And then, it, and he prayed for her specifically by saying, God, would you open some sort of a door? And you can't make it happen. Sometimes they're not in the right spot and you wouldn't have been the right person and God knows and he doesn't open a door. But in this case, he did. And she said, she, it turns out, I mean, this is how he found out she was a single mother this is how he found out, and there was a door open for their life, and he got to make a connection between her and his wife where he said, oh, you know, my wife works at this single mother's shelter thing. I'd love to make a connection. You know, is that all right? Can I just give you a card? And he's just throwing seeds. You're making yourself available, and you're throwing seeds, and then you find out, like I said, God has been in this place. And so he will be the one. If you're forcing it, you're going to go up into spiritual weirdo zone, remember, <laughs> But if you're being intentional and natural, but also just I am a Christian. I am a kingdom-minded, loving, spirit-filled, intentional Christian in the world. God will just start opening all these doors for you. It will happen. You don't have to force that. So that's been my experience, and, and, and uh, I think it will also be yours. Uh, I'd like to raise the subject of rejection. Uh, this is something that I, I think many of us who have been faithful for a long time have faced over and over. Uh, do you have any thoughts on, on how to deal with rejection or, you know, I think a lot for a lot of us, it, it grows into this big, huge monster in our minds that we fear. And um, any insights you can give on that? Yeah, it does hurt. But again, a lot of the stuff that I've been sharing as far as the more like simple things, 
of having a celebration, it hurts if you invite somebody to come to something and then they don't come. But when you think about that, that, that hurts. That's a price. But you know what? That's like absolutely nothing compared to what Jesus did going to the cross for us. If you think about how much he loved us, right? And remember we're saying while he's literally being murdered, he's asking for forgiveness for them. And then we said Paul, who uh, not only shared the gospel, but also shared his very lives with them. Sharing lives. And when you're sharing lives like that, rejection and pain is going to come. And it will cost you something. You know, there's a reason why we're being all funneled into this natural, normal, easy, easy path of just not having any human interaction. I go to the gym, I don't talk to people. I go to the grocery store, I don't talk to any people. I go home, I watch my own Netflix. I do. There's a reason why our society is gravitating more and more and more and more into that hole. And there's a reason why mental health is more and more and more more problems are on the rise. The reason is it's just natural and it's easy and it doesn't cost me anything. And there's not the pain and stuff. But if Jesus taught us to carry and pick up a cross, that means we have to do some sort of sacrifice. And considering what he did and meditating upon what he did for us will give us strength and courage to do it. Just to say one more word on that, and then I have a question also that I'd like to follow up with. You know, as followers of Jesus, we are in a place of experiencing the same sort of rejection that he did. Now, when Jesus taught about his disciples about the way that the world would act toward them, he said, you know, don't be surprised when they hate you because they hated me first. You know, so we can't have this um, romantic fairy tale idea of evangelism and sharing our faith as though people are going to be warm and fuzzy about uh, the whole topic. Even coming to the discussion itself can be riddled with, with issues. And so we have to just be prepared, like you said, that there is a sacrifice involved, an emotional sacrifice, a time sacrifice, resource sacrifice. But these are the seeds of the kingdom, and we're called to sow them uh, wherever the Lord puts us and uh, water them, but we can't make them grow. You know, Paul writes in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you know, that he planted and Apollos watered. But who gave the increase? It was God. You know, this is the work of the Lord Jesus and our Heavenly Father to be taking our words and actions and helping them in the hearts of people grow into potentially a, a tree of faith, uh, of which they then go through those transformative steps ultimately to accepting and entering the kingdom. My question, uh, unless there's anything else to say on that regard, I'm reminded of the words of Jesus where he said, when they persecute you, leap for joy in Luke 6. That's weird. <laughs> you know, I mean, I've read that script. I'm sure you've probably read that before, too, many of you. I wonder, I mean, it's just an idea, but I wonder if we need to be a little more willing to encourage each other when we do face rejection. Uh, like, for example, in my Wednesday night fellowship, we have a sharing time before prayer. So this way we know like what's going on in people's lives before we pray. Uh, it's really helpful. And, you know, not that anybody's ever done this that I can remember, but like, what if somebody's piped up and said, oh, hey, I, I tried to share my faith with somebody this week and they called me a fundamentalist and then they don't, and then they defriended me on Facebook, uh, you know, which is probably an extreme example of what would happen. 
uh, we have it pretty easy. You know, if, if then we, as a, as a community, rallied around that person and be like, you know what? They rejected the prophets before Jesus. They rejected Jesus. They rejected the apostles. They've been rejecting us this whole time. Like, take heart, you know, the, you know, in almost like kind of bringing it out rather than just like suffering silently on the whole rejection thing. I don't know. It's just an idea when you were talking there. Quick follow-up. Sorry, Jay. <laughs> uh, yeah, this book by De Silva, De Silva talks about honor, shame, patronage, and kinship. You know, uh, he talks in there about the early Christians and the Roman Empire, and he has this really interesting part where he says they had to develop an, al- quote, alternative court of reputation, meaning all of us have a court in which, I mean, I just got off jury trial, right? Like a court where your reputation is on trial. And if the court where your reputation is on trial is the war world, and you go out there, you're going to be fearful, and you're going to be quiet. But the early church has to have an alternative court of reputation where who I am, my worth, my value, my reputation, who I am as a person is not determined in your court. I have an alternative one, the church of, and God, and who God views me in Jesus. And if that's just a theoretical concept for you, and your actual court of reputation is going to be the world, then you'll just be quiet. But when, when, you ha- when it's a tangible and emotional reality where you feel my worth is actually given to me in my relationship with Christ and in this community, and this experience in this community, the church, then when we all come around each other to be able to encourage each other, that's what's going to mean something to you. And then when you do fear, f- f- experience rejection, it doesn't matter, man. I'm not in that court. You don't feel, you feel it. You feel it very deeply. But if church is just like a one-hour-a-week thing for you, that's not going to get it there. That's why the celebrations are out throughout the whole week and living a lifestyle of it is going to be huge. Have any of you guys ever been in a conversation and uh, there are questions that come up and you don't know what to say? Well, that's, I think that's probably a ubiquitous issue um, when you're talking about faith because people are going to have questions. Uh, Josh, would you be able to like speak to us of when you're in a conversation and a question is asked or, or something like that and you just don't know what to say, could you advise us on what you would do? Yeah, just make something up, right? Yeah, either make something up or just be, <laughs> yeah, or just be honest and tell them, you know, that's really interesting and I've never thought about that, I've never heard that. Would you let me actually think about that, research it more and get back with you? People will totally respect that, 1,000% more than BSing it. And now you have opportunity to follow up and have further yeah, things. So there's actually interesting, um, my philosophy is going to start shining out here. Anybody heard of re- Reformed epistemology? Yeah. Love this. Don't like much stuff Reformed, at least as far as some of it. But I love this Reformed epistemology. So this is from a guy named Alvin Plantinga. And he talks about, God, I do a whole seminar on this, guys, but I'm going to really restrain myself. Um, <laughs> he uh, talks about how we know Christianity is actually true. How do we know that, that it's true? And there's a distinction between that and then how we can show it to others that it's true when they come up with an objection. So he says their case is, I'm going to limit myself to this to maybe give you, a, you know, the salt the horse thing. I'm going to salt you guys and make you curious. <laughs> so you go read up on this. He says there are cases where somebody presents an objection to your review, actual evidence against it that it's wrong. And you have zero way to answer that. But you are still 100% rational in knowing what you believe and continue to believe what you do. So he gives examples. Like, and I thought of a different one, but here, here's an example. Say you're Neil Armstrong, 
first man ever to walk on the moon. Um, and you walk on the moon, and you have this incredible experience, and you've been there. But you know, a lot of people are lunar skeptics, right? And they, have you ever listened to these guys? They have all these arguments about, like, maybe the moon landing was fake because, oh, the dust, uh, the levels, and because of the solar wind, like, and, the, and they give all this sort of, like, pseudo-scientific, quasi-science stuff, like, against it. Some of it sounds pretty good, actually. Like, you start reading, you start reading this, and you're like, wow, I don't know that. Well, imagine you're Neil Armstrong, and you walked on the moon. And you flew that back down and landed in the ocean. They picked you up in the helicopter, and you go to a lunar skeptic landings meeting like conference. And as soon as you get in there, they start presenting you with all the, this evidence and this objection, and you have no idea how to answer what the heck they said. And it sounds really good. What are you going to do? Are you going to stop believing that you went to the moon? No. It would, be, it would be completely irrational. It would be the wrong thing for you to do. Because you have what's called, what Planet calls a defeater, defeater. They presented a defeater to try to defeat your belief, right? I believe in God, and you're trying to defeat it with this objection. Well, guess what? I have a defeater defeater. It's the fact that I've freaking been on the moon, man. <laughs> well, guess what? I've been on the moon because I met him. I've experienced him. And that, that firsthand experience of the Lord is an intrinsic defeater defeater of what you're saying, even if I don't know how to answer it. Now, that's for me. How do I know? It's very different now. How do I show someone else, right? How do you show is you're going to have to use evidence and reasoning and logic to answer their question. And that you've got to do homework. But if you don't know, for you, your faith is safe. But for them, just get back with them later. Yeah, well, we can't, we can't go off on warrant, warranted Christian belief and free will defense, but we'll nerd out later. Yeah. So I think the one uh, bubble that I, I think uh, I had to burst was an ego issue of that we don't have all the answers. Like we personally in our mind don't have all the answers and we have to be okay with that. I wasn't okay with it for a long time. It was like I needed to, I needed to make the Christian faith like indefeatable by being able to answer every objection. You know, and so I kind of had to come to terms where, you know, I, I am a limited human being and the answers that I can provide are all the only, only the ones that I have, you know, and to be okay with the tension that's produced by saying, I don't know, but let me get back to you on that. You know, it's okay to ask for time to consider what they said because you want to give them that same grace to consider what you said. So that, that was a big shift in my thinking. So um, that's, that's all I had to say on, on that. Off the cuff, quick, somebody says to you, Josh, I see your faith is important to you. Seems like it really works for you. I'm happy for you. But uh, there's just too much pain and suffering in the world. I don't see how, you know, there could possibly be a good God. Uh, how would you answer that kind of objection? Yeah, so one of my professors at Talbot, uh, William Lane Craig, he has this thing where he distinguishes between the emotional problem of evil and the intellectual problem of evil. And he says most of the time when people are presenting this, it's, it's, they're, it's masquerading as an intellectual problem, but really underneath, this is the emotional problem of evil. They themselves are feeling suffering. They themselves have felt pain. There's something else there. So you have to be able to be wise when you're doing this. And this is why the what do you mean by that will actually help. Because the first thing you want to do 
is distinguish, is this the emotional problem of evil? They're suffering and they're feeling pain and they're feeling rejection and hurt. Because if it is, and I launch into all my intellectual answers right now, that is not going to help. That could even make it worse. Because what I'm saying is your feelings are invalidated. Your feelings are wrong. Logic, logic, logic. And they're going to hunker down even more into it, right? So that's the first step. Is If anybody said that, I would try to... And, and you know, this is the thing where I'm not... Sometimes I'm just in a bar, and I did that atheist thing for two years. And if I'm just in a bar, and I met somebody for the first time, and they're asking me that, well, we'll have fun. We'll have a beer. We'll talk and stuff. But if I'm with these other guys, these atheists who I met with for two years, I start to know their life. This is why actually having a relationship is important, because I can be able to discern and tell, like, what is it that they're really getting at and why? Which particular aspect of the problem they really are struggling with? You know, and I'll be able to address that bit more. I think we as we read about it, and I mean, I have a master's degree in this stuff, and if I wanted to, I could launch the whole like hour thing about it, but we have enough of these intellectual reasons to be able to know why God would be justified in allowing evil to occur in the world and what sort of things could be happening beyond it, but at the end of the day, for any particular evil of this particular thing happened, I'm not going to say, well, I know, thus saith the Lord, this is why that evil happened to you, and this is the reason in explaining it. And at the end of the day, you're going to have to be stuck with the question, well, are you, going to, are you going to trust him? You know, are you going to trust him? And why is that valid? Because, let's face it, you as a knower, atheist person who is asking this, they are just not in the sort of cognitive position as a knower to be able to make the judgment call of whether or not God was justified in allowing this particular evil to happen or not. You don't have access to it. So I'll give you an example of what I mean. You hear the story about the guy who, in this alley in war zone in Syria, he sliced open the pregnant woman's belly and took the baby out in the alley. And you're like, that's, that's disgusting. Right? It's awful. Who is this guy? Bring him out here so we could kill him, you know? And then we say, well, it was an emergency operation. He was a doctor, and he saved the mother's life and the baby. And now all of a sudden you're like, he's a hero, right? This guy's great. Bring him out. Well, what's the difference is your vantage point. If you're zoomed in and the data set that you have on, on analyzing this is just that there's a man, there's an alley, there's a knife that he's using, he's cutting your belly. It's, oh, you don't have all the information, right? But when you zoom out to the big picture, you're able. Well, as humans who are finite and limited, we just physically don't are not capable in the position of knowing all that data set to understand what's happening and why. So, yeah, so the moment that you put yourself in that position to say, you know, I know that God was not justified in allowing this evil to happen. How could you possibly be in that position to be able to make that claim? These are the sort of things I would start. Yeah, turn the tables on them. We could talk more. We talk about the problem of good and why <laughs> the fact that there's good at all ends up proving why there should be a God. And I could ask them lots of questions about, what do you mean by evil? Where'd you get that from? How does your worldview account for something to be? Aren't we just chemicals in motion that are just moving and becoming more self-organized and reproducing according to Darwinian like forces? So if I have a bunch of chemicals here and this, I shake up this bottle of Sprite and I shake up this bottle of Dr. Pepper and they all start fizzing all over the place, which one of them's right? Neither of it's right or wrong. It's just chemicals in motion moving. If one bag of chemicals pokes another bag and some of its chemicals spill out all over the floor, it didn't do anything wrong. 
just a bunch of chemicals spilled out on the floor. So where are you getting these notions of right and wrong and evil and bad anyway in your worldview without a God? So these are sort of things that I would begin. Yeah, the uh, the question of evil and suffering is one of the largest uh, arguments that has been made, and one of the oldest as well, against the existence of God and his character. We could do an entire BEC class on suffering and evil. I want to do one more question, and I think we can maybe field some from the audience here. But I would say... Uh, we all probably have had conversations at times where we get to a point and it seems the conversation sort of like stalls out. Like you're talking about faith, and it's just kind of like gets to that point where, where they don't really respond and you're like, do I keep saying more? Do I press on? So when you get to a point where the conversation is sort of in this uh, stalled out limbo, if you want to use that term, sort of like in between where it's like you don't know if they want to continue the conversation or you don't know if they're trying to find an exit what would you do there in that uh, circumstance? Yeah. Well, I mean, you could just straight up ask them. But if they're not picking up what you're laying down, personally, i drop it. They're, yeah, if they're not hungry, you can't make them eat, man. You know, if they're not willing. Jesus said, like, if anybody wills to do the Father's will, then they'll know. But some people just don't will. So what I would do in that place is I would mark in my little notebook, becoming curious. <laughs> and I would write that person's name. <laughs> And I would begin to pray for them. And because uh, if they're not picking up what I'm laying down, then now I got to start, I, instead of just tackling that directly and saying, well, let me say it again and let me say it more. And let, then it's going to start coming off as potentially pushy and you'll end up being harming it. So instead of that, go around the problem by figuring out other ways that I can begin to make them curious. Other ways I can ask. So be asking, developing quite more relationship with them, asking more things, finding out about their family praying the whole time and realizing because maybe if this particular issue that you're talking about isn't interesting them i promise you something will something in their life is connected with spiritual with things that connects to their particular needs and their longings and their desires and their passions and their will and all the, the holistic part of their whole body and maybe a lot of times me for my problem i'll come at it with just through what i'm interested in it's about me, what I'm interested in when I'm talking to them, you know, the things that I'm talking to. But, you know, that's not how relationships work, right? So we'll be listening more and finding out the areas that you can be making them curious. And if they're not picking it up, drop it. Pray for them. Because guess what? There's a billion other people. Any uh, questions or comments? Yes, a comment. Um, and that is that many times I get to a point where people are talking with me and I'm sitting there and standing there and I'm thinking I have absolutely no idea what to say to this person. Nothing. There's just no brainiac thing. There's nothing. I am one, but you know, there's just nothing there. It's just. And so immediately I go to God and I ask Him and I say, What do you want me to say in this situation? And then I just say it. And that really works well, I think, in many of these situations. You know, that's why we have that connection with Him. In these situations where we just don't know, he knows. And it may be off the wall, it might be something like a joke, it might be something. But it's what I asked him, he answers that prayer and it gets done. I did, I did want to just mention one other thing on the question of suffering, which you made me think of. Because, like, yeah, I mean, there are plenty of times where you do freeze up, and, and there isn't some, like, brilliant Josh Anderson question, or question to ask the person that pops into your head. You're just, like, silent. On the issue of suffering, one thing that I, I heard, I think from Tim Keller, uh, was where he says to people, look, 
I don't know. If somebody asks you the question, well, why does God allow this suffering? You just say, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not aware of what his reasons are, but I do know two things. One, he's with you through it all. He's in time. He's in the situation, whatever it is. He's there. Whether bad things are happening or good things are happening, God is always there. He's always present. He's, it's not like uh, something that he doesn't know about. And then the other is he has plans to fix it all. I mean, on atheism, talk about a dissatisfying solution to the problem of evil. Crap happens. Tough luck. I guess they weren't the fittest if they didn't survive. I mean, what kind of a, what kind of a way of living? It's not livable, you know? Like your, your, your good friend gets hit by a car and they die, and you're asking your atheist friend for, for you know, how to make sense of it, and they're like, there is no sense of it. It was random. Oh, Great. You know, at least on Christianity, there's hope. We can say to somebody, look, I don't know why God allowed this to happen. Or, or you could bring in spirit, unclean spirits or the devil or free will. You could bring in all kinds of things. But ultimately, we don't really know because we're not, like you said, we're not privy to that information. That set of data is not, you know, we don't have access to it. But we do know that God does plan to fix the world, and that is his ultimate goal and for me, that, there's, there's a lot of satisfaction in knowing that God sees it all. God knows what's going on. Jesus says, look, you know, anything that happens is secret, he sees it. You know, he knows all the hairs. He knows every dumb bird that hits the ground outside. He sees it all. He is going to make it right. That's his promise to us. And for me, that's, that's very compelling. Uh, to follow up one thing with what you said, Marianne, um, that I think is sort of uh, could be a hurdle for some of us. It was for me at one point was just having to s- figure out to s- what to say, like I needed to say the right thing. As though if there was a, a magic word or phrase that would be like the, 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 the answer that would then get me to the next point in the conversation. Whereas a lot of times I, I don't think maybe we really know what to say or even what we say. Maybe we don't know if it's really the right thing to say. But I think that that's where we get hung up on it sort of being our job to try to be the one causing the growth. I think more often than not, if we're trying to be receptive to the leading of the Spirit, we can be just talking to a person in normal conversation and be saying some things that can be even be ministering to them, and we don't even know it. You know, and so trying to worry about what the right answer is or what the right thing to say is at, the, at that moment, I think, is to overthink what the Lord is at work doing. So I think that kind of resonates with what you were saying. Uh, do we have another question from the audience? Yeah, Russell. An evangelical type conference, and we were led uh, with the approach of like that great comfort uh, type of good person test, whatever type thing. And so, and, th- and their premise was like, you kind of overlook that people have their certain issues, that the bottom line issue across the board is that you know, we're sinners, the law of the Lord is perfect and converting the soul, we got to get them to understand that and bring them uh, to understand that they need a Savior. Where have, have we found, like, fall in that? Where have we kind of changed from that or progressed from that? And is there any uh, need to even go and approach the whole law? Because I know you kind of went over the repent part for the sake of time. And stuff, you know. Is that even an approach anymore, or is it just that was faulty and 
Yeah, I wouldn't say any of those things are necessarily faulty in itself. You know, and, I'm, and again, like I said, God uses what God's going to use, and uh, maybe He does. But without finding fault with the rate comfort strategy, because you know, for those who don't remember, He'll just say like, "Have you ever lied? You know, um, have you ever stolen something? Like just basic little tiny sin. Well, you've broken God's law. If you've broken one, you've broken all of it, and then that means you're guilty. If you're guilty, you're going to hell. And this sort of this sort of thing." And uh, Jeff Anderson, who I mentioned earlier, went to uh, came to Japan. And uh, if you want to check him out on YouTube, he's got some actually really good training. Soma training. What's his name? Jeff, and I cannot spell his last name off the top of my head. Vanderstelp. Um, just look up Soma. S-O-M-A, like body. It's very excellent training on this. But he asked uh, a guy, an open air preacher in London, because you know they have that park where everybody can stand up and talk. And there was a guy using Ray Comfort's uh, technique there. He just asked him, he was like, you know, this guy who was grilling, he just asked him, like, dude, do you know that guy? You know, he was like, no. He said, do you, do you love him? And he was like, well, and the guy was honest enough to say, I mean, not really. I don't know him. He's not in my, my life at all, but I'm just trying to give him the law so he will understand and see his need for God and whatever. So in a sense, I'm loving him in that way. And then Jeff just challenged him without saying that the Ray Comfort stuff was good or bad or effective or not. He just said, well, I just challenge you to like get to know the people and to actually love them and have some sort of relationship with them as well. And then see how the effect goes deeper from there. So that's all I'd add. One of the interesting things that you said in that uh, promo video you did was that we don't want to just be faithful. We, we want to be effective. And the problem I have had with Ray Comfort's strategy is it's very, very, very low effectiveness with people. And that was 10 years ago. It was ineffective. The, the problem I'm seeing today is, and, and you touched on this, is that to even talk about something like God, sin, uh, belief, any of these sorts of subjects is, is considered, Jerry did a whole talk on this uh, a, a year and a half ago on the privatization of religion. He, it's like asking to see in somebody's closet in their bedroom. And if you don't even know this person, no, you can't come in my bedroom and look in my closet. That's my private space. Now, we think it shouldn't be that way and we should be able to talk about these things, but that's just where they're at. So, Starting in on somebody with sin and then bringing them right to talk about God and everything when there's no relational credibility at all is a minimal likelihood of success. It generates a minimal likelihood of success. That doesn't mean it's, it can't succeed. I have one friend, uh, Bill, there in Rhode Island. He was in a bookstore, this guy, Bill. And somebody just Ray comforted him up one side, down the other, and said, I got to go. See you later. And Bill totally repented and became a Christian and stands to this day. So it's like, I'm not going to say, you know, like a, a direct, like, you're a sinner in the hands of an angry God, you know, approach isn't going to work for anyone. Uh, but the people that I know today will just get offended. And interestingly enough, I mean, I haven't watched any Ray Comfort videos in like forever. But last week I did. For whatever reason, it was on, you know, they, in YouTube, they have suggested videos to watch. It, was, it popped up over there. I'm like, 
how is that New Zealander doing? Like, is he, is he still out there doing this stuff? Like, has he changed? And I watched his video, and it was the most incredible thing. There was this uh, very young, attractive, YouTuber, popular girl. And uh, she was making fun of Ray Comfort a lot on her YouTube channel. She's got all these thousands of followers, and she thinks she's a big deal and all this. And um, Ray Comfort sent her a gift card for $100. And, and uh, just, uh, he just loved her. And just said, hey, I would love to talk sometime if you want to come on my video, or you know, I could come on yours, and, and, and we could just talk. Because she was, she was offering all these criticisms directly against him. And she was, she's a hardcore atheist. And, um, and so he, he like responds to her, her arguments on his YouTube, you know, these YouTube things. Then uh, he sent her this thing. And she, and she records this whole video where she like opens it. And she's like, oh, wow, this is from Ray Comfort. You know, and she, you could just see that she is completely blown away that he showed her love. And then she came on his YouTube <laughs> And they had like a real conversation and it wasn't, it wasn't the cheesy like, have you ever told a lie? You know, it was like a real genuine, con- and, and, and she didn't convert on the spot, but she couldn't any longer caricature him as this like bobblehead that's just saying, repent, repent, repent. You know, like he's a real person. He, he invested in you. I thought that video was pretty cool. Any other comments, questions? Ruby? Everything that's being said, especially what Marianne had, had mentioned, uh, is that not to forget to have humility and meekness. And it's God that works within us because he knows the individual's heart. And it's like all these tools, this is tools, are excellent. And to keep them in place as tools, not as a formula, so that people can see the love of God in us, and that's what we're endeavoring to keep at the top of every, you know, interaction we have with people, that they're seeing Christ in us, that we're loving them and not being fake, or, um, you know, but that these are wonderful tools to help us to get out of a rut and to be a good check, but to not get locked in and to be free to walk with the uh, humility and meekness as the Spirit directs us to each individual. That's what I want to do. Amen. That's a great point. I myself am also skeptical of method. You know, if someone has a canned one-fits-one-fit-all approach, it's just not going to work, especially like in cities. You know, in cities there's just so many different cultures so many different backgrounds, so many different types of people, so many different individual lives and problems that a one method fits all just is not going to reach everyone. And it's not what everybody needs. So the spirit blows where it wills. So uh, the same way as people born by the spirit of God, you're going to be fitting with what the needs are at the moment. And that becomes on you to be walking with them and do the listening up, you know, (laughs) listening up and walking with them. Like you said earlier, anyone else? When you were talking about effectiveness and stuff, and I just, I think it's always good to remind ourselves that ultimately in the end, we're usually way more ineffective than effective. I mean, it's not like if you have 10 people to speak to, on average, nine of them all become Christians, faithfully live out their Christ, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, it, it is a situation that we're involved in that 
for the most part, and I would think most people would agree with it, certainly more people have not accepted what you've had to say than what have. And so, you know, but that's, we're in for the long haul. You know, we keep on doing this. And um, I don't know, I think it just helps us in our thinking in terms of, it's not like, oh, now, now I can go out and do this. And now all of a sudden, well, probably within the next month, I'll have brought five or six people to church because, you know, this is all going to be different now. But the truth of the matter is, is that some believe, some don't. And if we can find those who will to believe, then, then we want to be there for them, to, to be those and bring them. That's right. The thing I would say to that also is um, I advise you to just so widely. So widely, so seed all over the place. So here, so it there. Make yourself available here. Make it there. Be doing your language route here. Be doing it there. Be saying comments, you know, all around, and then just praying for God to open doors. But instead, I think sometimes we get stuck on this, these few people who've rejected the gospel over and over and over and over and over again, and we're just finding more and more creative ways to like give it to them again when there's a billion people on the planet of this earth. You know, there's more than that, right? So. Yeah, Why, how about just, you know, moving on to those like Jesus who moved on, moved on, moved on to the next cities and the next town. And, you know, there'd be people times where they come in and say, oh, Jesus, there's this need here, over here. And what did he do? He got on the boat and he left. <laughs> you know? Um, are there any other questions? Yeah, Matt. Just on Brian's part, I just wanted to say, I think a lot of times we don't realize it. We don't realize the effectiveness that we do have because... You know, we don't we don't see the, the full fruit in this lifetime, um, but God God sees it. You know, like um, I believe when uh, Francis Xavier first showed up in Japan in the 1600s, he spent years trying to reach the Japanese. He only made one convert. He felt like a failure. But from that one convert, that convert made other converts, and thousands of Japanese through the centuries had traced themselves back. So like we we really don't know the fruit that we made. We you might plant a seed with someone. You might think that they nothing came of it, but maybe 20 years, 30 years, 100 years. I mean, so just keeping that perspective in mind is important. One guy would, may have been faithful to what God called him to do, he may reach one person. Another guy might be faithful and might reach a thousand people. Both of them are faithful. That's, that's what matters, you know. But my question is, uh, I, I like how on the worksheet you put down number six, Life in the Kingdom, and you never mentioned that in the, in the, in the TASC, but um, you know, the Great Commission is more than just reaching the lost. Um, if you just get someone to pray one prayer and, and that's it, then you, you really haven't discipled them. Discipleship is a continuing process, and there's, there's actually three parts to the Great Commission. And uh, making disciples is just the first part. Then the third part, he said, um, teach these new disciples to obey everything I have commanded you. So, would you like, can you comment on this life in the kingdom and is uh, continued discipleship and, and teaching people how to live. Because if you just get them to, to yeah, if someone confesses with their mouth and believes in their heart, that's that's great. But if, if, if they're just left if they're just left as orphans and they're never taught how to live as a Christian, and is that kind of what you had in mind with this life in the kingdom? And, and is that can you just talk about uh, that part of the process? Hi, Matosan, He speaks some Japanese. That's why I thought. Good question, is what I said. <laughs> yeah, so I did skip that because of time, but that was exactly my point, what you said, is that, that the thresholds continue on, 
because just because you enter the kingdom, you can still get stuck at a threshold <laughs> of not growing, right? And not going on on that further path. So the discipleship does absolutely continue and the rest of your life. You know, like I said, look over your back and is there anyone following you, right? But also look forward. Who are you, whose faith are you imitating? <laughs> and who is discipling you? And both of those should be true for your entire life. And we were talking at the table earlier about fruit and the Christian life. And uh, we were saying, like, when a new believer first enters the kingdom and they get filled with the Spirit and they get this beautiful honeymoon phase of just joy and light and everything I said of my wife's countenance being changed and joy and light from her eyes and, and asking all these questions and learning, there's a lot of growth and healing that happens there. That is sort of like the flower that blooms. You know, when you get fruit on a tree, first there's the flower, and it's beautiful, and it grows so fast, and it's so wonderful. But the flower isn't necessarily, like, the fruit. After the flower fades off and the honeymoon period goes away, and you're in the kingdom, to get the real fruit, you have to do the long, hard work over the series of life, right? Like Peterson said, that long obedience in the same direction. Uh, so that's where I was going with that. Thank you for asking. Yes? Really important um, to watch the people in the church and to not lose people. Like um, Jesus says that you know we should bear fruit and our fruit should remain. And you know, Jesus said to God that you know that we should save them and that, that he shouldn't lose any. You know and that he had his disciples or his apostles and he only lost the sons of tradition. I know he says there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that repents than in 99 that need no repentance. But um, he also said that he'd leave those 99 and go after that one lost sheep. It's, it's really important to hold on to each other and to make sure that the body knows that they're loved and that they're important. That they don't get lost. If there's missing, you should notice. I think that's where the gifts that Christ gave the church come into play. It says in Ephesians chapter 4, you know, that it's, they're all in service to the body for the building up so that, and for the equipping of uh, ministering. So I think we do need, everybody needs to be playing that part in the church to be able to help each other grow so we can grow up into our Lord Jesus Christ and be, uh, to reach the, uh, we're supposed to aspire to reach the full stature you know, of Christ, you know, so I think that's, that's important. I mean, I think what you're saying is we should care about uh, the flock that is among us right now, as well as the people out there who could potentially come into the fold. Is that because you're trying to make those, those two parables, if I remember? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great point. Is there any other questions? Go with uh, the rejection part. Uh, before, when I came here, I had a, an opportunity to go with Wendy Bruno. We went to doing some groceries, and we had an opportunity to talk to people. And we invited three people, and none came. <laughs> none came. But the day was very special. We were asking God, like I was telling her, I prayed, if somebody comes and sits with us in this chair, we're going to talk. We're going to talk about God. So the experience was awesome, but the result was not really good. So I think we can use our personal abilities, like I just uh, with friends, the way we talk, 
uh, find out that I can really talk to people easily at college and like right now I'm in a group that now has like 57 people. It's just incredible how it started with two people and now it's really like a great tool of outreach in college. With the rejection, I would say we need to continue. When you are, you feel like rejected, people don't really uh, show up, we need to continue and find ways that, that works. Yeah, I, th I think you've actually done uh, a really tremendous job and um, are, are very uh, active in pulling together people from your local sphere at the college and, and also some young people in the area here. So I just want to commend you for that, Timmy Paul. I think it's great to invite people to come to church. One of the things we do here at, at Living Hope is, is that we'll have special Sundays because, to be honest, not every Sunday is a great Sunday to invite somebody to come. There are some Sundays where we are going to deal with controversial issues. And, and, you know, depending on who you're talking to, every single subject in the Bible can be controversial, depending on where that person's coming from. And, and sometimes we're going to uh, do things that are, are designed, like Valerie said before, to deepen the existing believer's relationship and knowledge of God and the things of God. And so I know that there are some more evangelical-style churches that every Sunday is a 20-minute you know, sermon designed for first-timers. That's, that's not our culture here. Uh, what we do instead is we'll have big Sundays, like this Sunday, tomorrow, is a big Sunday. We're, we have this Sunday specifically in mind for people who are not Christians to come, and for, for you to invite them, for us all to invite them. And everything is, is, is thought of in the sense of this is an open Sunday where we're, we're hoping that lots of non-Christians would come. <laughs> and then other Sundays, you know, we're, we're doing other things. And, and we have to, you know, as a pastor, we have to do both. We have to feed the people who are already believers, but then also reach out to new folks. And so that's kind of like how we have... Uh, figured that out here is that you know like for example if we have a meal after the service we know people are going to come because there's food we know that it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out right and a, a lot of those people are going to come for the food and we're okay with that you know we're like god bless you jesus you know fed people and uh you know we feed people so that's good but then other Sundays, you know, we, we do get into deeper stuff where we feel like, you know, God is leading us to, to tackle this subject or that subject or to go in depth on this book of the Bible, which might not make a lot of sense if somebody's here for the first time. So I think, you know, that's kind of like the strategy we've landed on here at, at Living Hope as far as like inviting new people. Invite them on a, a Sunday where we're having a big push to bring new, new folks to come. Uh, and, if, and if you invite them on another Sunday... They could come in and, you know, um, I was thinking about like musical taste. Musical taste is so specific. If somebody comes in and they're not into the worship genre of music, if this person is a non-Christian, they're not familiar with any of those genres at all. They're familiar with rap, heavy metal, alternative, hip-hop, country. That's what they're familiar with, and that's none of what we're doing here. So the chances of them even liking the music is low. 
the chances of them being comfortable in a room like this with people like us is low because they're not used to coming to church or, or being in a meeting like this. The chance of, of them being offended by some random thing is very high. You know what I mean? So I think a lot of us have the, the assumption, oh, if I just invite somebody, they just, you mentioned this, if they just come in this building, you know, the moment they cross the threshold of that parking lot and see Kurt Falhammer's smiling German face and he's handing them the program and Donna Salamita and she smiles and, you know, uh, Midge or Mercedes collect the offering. As soon as they see these wonderful people, they're just going to fall on their knees and cry out, God is assuredly among you. But a lot of times it doesn't. They're just kind of like awkward and going to appease somebody who really wants them to come. And uh, I, I really love how, and, and you, I'd love to hear your comments on this, Josh, after my very, very long intro here to this question. You've shifted the burden from, okay, just bring them here and then like hopefully something will happen to, no, you are the church. You. Each individually and as a group, you are the church. You do evangelism. The church, we want to help. <laughs> like, this is why we're here, too. But, you know, we're kind of limited in our ability to do that every single Sunday. So I'm really excited about this in sort of like activating each of us as individuals to be like, no, I, I'm, taking, I'm taking some responsibility here. And I'm not just going to hope that the preacher, whoever that happens to be that Sunday, happens to preach exactly the thing this person needs to hear. I mean, look, sometimes that happens, and it's glorious. But, like, are we really just going to, like, roll the dice and hope that it, that's, our, that's our strategy? Yeah, exactly. That's really good. So remember the three strands? Yeah, so there has to be yourself sharing the gospel and yourself building the relationships and then also bringing them into the community. And starting with people, if I just meet someone the first time, if, so, if somebody met me for the first time and they just invited me to go to some religious meeting, I'm not going to go, guys. <laughs> just be honest. Put yourself in the shoes of somebody or think about if what would it take for you to convert to become a Muslim, right? If some guy off the street comes and I'll ask you, you know, or a Sikh or pick even a more esoteric, you know, to become Hindu or something, and they off the street just meet you one time in an airport, and they just happen to give you some track, and they ask you to come to their meeting, are you going to go? Honestly. You know, I actually probably would go, yeah, because I'm interested in this stuff, right? But we're, but for the vast majority, people just probably aren't going to go. I don't know you, and I'm not interested. But if, you know, remember the five thresholds? But if I actually have a relationship with this person, and I know them, and I trust them, and I see good things in their life. And then they're inviting me to celebrations. And I celebrate with them. And I'm living life. And I'm seeing them all work together. And now I don't just know one. I know multiple people of this religion. And I trust them all. I'm around them. And I'm a little bit curious-minded. So I ask some general questions or whatever. And uh, you see where I'm going? <laughs> of course, it would be wrong for us to become open to change, to, to apostatize and go against the Lord. Because we have the actual truth. <laughs> Get yourself in the mindset of what it feels like that you're asking these people to do. And if you wouldn't just come to some meeting because you asked a stranger one time, why do you expect them to? And then why would you get hurt that they rejected it? <laughs> you know, you don't know them. You got to get to know people and love them. Be involved in their life. 
And then, uh, and then the celebrations is huge because it's definitely like the halfway house between the actual church. Because when you got a bunch of Christians hanging out in community together who are living life and, and celebrating and, and being blessed and drinking wine and breaking the bread, and, and, and Christ comes up naturally in a conversation sometimes because we just are Christians. And we're around each other, and they're in that environment. And then you invite them to come to church one time? That's a big, huge step. Huge. Well, this brings our class to a conclusion. Thanks to all of you who have made it through this whole way. Really appreciate you taking the time. This is an important subject, although often neglected by many of us, uh, myself included. It's just so easy to sweep this aspect of essential Christian living under the rug and say, ah, well, somebody else will do that, or the pastor will do it, or if you're a pastor, the people will do it and so on. But we we all need to be doing it. We all need to be looking for opportunities. And I just so love this presentation that uh, Anderson put forward over the last number of episodes here. In fact, uh, in episode 318, Talon Paul wrote in and said, thank you, thank you, thank you. Talon Paul, if you don't know, is a pastor uh, out in the Midwest in Indiana. He writes, thank you, thank you, thank you for this series. Josh Anderson's messages have brought much clarity and conviction into my own life and has renewed a passion to share the good news wherever I find myself. Evangelism used to be my primary spiritual discipline, but as I started as a pastor of a congregation, I unintentionally distanced myself from it, choosing to stay in my Christian bubble and avoiding regular people for the sake of convenience. I want to express my gratitude for sharing this series. Well, Talon, that is exactly the case that so many of us in full-time ministry find ourselves in because we, especially if we have a believing spouse and Christian relatives, that is really hard to break out of that bubble. But look, we have to find ways. The success that I've personally had in this area is just looking at what hobbies I have, what interests I have, what sports I enjoy, and then finding ways to to join a group or find a club that is in the area and just be normal. Just go and be normal. And before you know it, you've got 200 more Facebook contacts that are non-Christians on your Facebook. And it's not just an echo chamber of all Christian stuff. And, uh, you know, that that's, that's a great starting point. I think right now, uh, with the virus spreading, a lot of us are sheltered. But look, this too will pass. Uh, right now, we have a lot of opportunities online to talk with people as people are increasingly feeling lonely, uh, and I think we should take advantage of that. But this too shall pass, and, we, and life will go on, and we will, once again, have opportunity to join different groups and participate in the community. I know some of you out there are musicians. You play in a community band or orchestra or participate in plays or musicals, you know, these are all different avenues that we have that put us in touch with with unbelievers with whom we can become friends and invite over for dinner and celebrate with, as we've learned about in this class. Talent Paul goes on, he says, I also would like to suggest a follow-up series on the second half of the Great Commission, training and teaching others. What methods or ways can we effectively train those we are discipling, both inside and outside the church gathering? Thanks again. Well, Talon, I'll certainly take that into consideration, and uh, although I don't have that on the docket right now, maybe in the future we can we can figure something out for that. If any of you 
uh, have suggestions on the whole issue of uh, training and teaching others within our churches and making disciples that you could leave a comment on. That comment was from episode 318, Building Relational Credibility. Um, And this episode is 320, Evangelism Panel Discussion. So either one of those, if you want to drop a comment on, that would be great so we could get some ideas rolling here about discipleship and what you've seen this worked. Uh, I could just say for our own ministry at Living Hope International Ministries that my father is working on a workbook that he's hoping to use for for new folks. It's sort of like a it's it's sort of patterned on the Experiencing God workbook. I don't know if any of you are familiar with Henry Blackaby and Richard Blackaby, but that's the style of it where people have a section to do each day and then they get together once a week and discuss what they've learned and what their questions are and that sort of thing. So stay tuned for that. But, you know, there's lots of material out there from a variety of ministries that that does the same thing. For example, also on the LHIM website, lhim.org, we have a class called, uh, under educational free downloads, we have a class called God's Purpose of the Ages, a Love Story, and that is designed for new folks as well as the class called Exploring Scripture, which basically just goes through the whole Bible and presents it to people as if for the first time. So, uh, yeah, there's there's some stuff out there. We'd love to hear what any of your suggestions are as well. Also, I wanted to let you know about an exciting new series we're going to be starting up next week on the whole topic of original sin. I don't know what your position is on this topic, but so far as I understand it right now, there are really three major views. There's the classic Augustinian view, which teaches that everyone inherits sin from their parents, and therefore babies need to get baptized to wash away that original sin, that even if they haven't sinned themselves, they are still bearing that sin upon them. Then there's the more Pelagian view that says, oh, there is no inherited sin at all. We're born morally neutral, and we make our own choices, and we have the ability to choose right or choose wrong. And then the more middle position that says we do have inherited sin or maybe even a sin nature that inspires us to sin or that tempts us to sin, but it is resistible. Uh, And so this, this is a topic of great concern for my next guest for next week, which is going to be Keegan Chandler. I'm going to play out his presentation from the Theological Conference last year, the 2019 Theological Conference. The one this year sadly got canceled. Uh, they're, they're thinking of, re, of rescheduling that for July, which is not a great time for a lot of us. But, you know, who knows what the future holds with this virus situation. But uh, anyhow, we're going to play that out next week. Uh, and then we're going to have Jerry Weirwell respond and offer a peer review of Keegan Chandler's work. And then we'll have a couple of episodes where the two of them can really get down in discussion to the nitty-gritty and see if they can't come to a better understanding of what the Bible is teaching on this subject. So uh, this is going to be an exciting time of theology and concern over the question of, first of all, original sin, and second of all, whether or not people are able to choose to do the right thing or not. And then last of all, if Christians are able to live to live righteously or if they're always dogged by this nature, uh, sometimes called the flesh, even after Christ. So this is a, this is, these are important subjects, and we'll get to them next week. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. 
Uh, if you'd like to support Restitutio, you can do that online at restitutio.org. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.